0: Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of British produce and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into the show, which celebrates the best food and drink found on our doorsteps. On this episode, we are speaking to sheep farmer, Matt Chatfields. He is giving sheep that are no longer deemed fit for breeding a great retirement and by doing so is producing probably the best mutton that you will ever taste. Matt also chats about silver pasture, a way of farming that was actually listed at number nine on Project Drawdown's list of climate solutions. Fergus the forager is here to talk about jelly ears, a fungi found on the elder tree. It's really common and a great one for beginners. But first, here's my update from the food world. Bar Market has a special festive kitchen this Christmas. You can pop along to the spectacular looking studio in December or catch it digitally, need I add. Kicking off this Wednesday and running for around three weeks, the programme features digital cook-alongs and masterclasses with top chefs like Bettina Campolucci-Bordi and Ed Kimber, the winner of the first Great British Bake Off. Big names in the culinary world also include Anna Jones and Gizzy Erskine, who are taking part in live in conversation with events. All content will be streamed from the Borough Market's Facebook page. In other technological news, M restaurants are introducing champagne robots. Yes, you heard it right. These are actually robots that will serve champagne throughout the London Grill restaurants. The robots named Bailey and Sage, absolutely love that, will take your order, trundle over to the bar and return with a trayful of Verve Clico. If the team are listening, I would very much like one in my house. <laughs> Lastly, throughout December, I will be celebrating a doorstep Christmas and will be highlighting ideas for foodie gifts from across the UK. First up, I have discovered a gorgeous macaroon, or is it macaron, maker in Hampshire called Puttit Glaze, making such beautifully decorated treats. Shaney, who's behind it, is on Instagram, so you can take a look for yourself. Her festive flavours include maple pecan pie, salted caramel, and mulled berries. They are almost too pretty to eat. So, those are your three foodie things on your doorstep for this week. I'm now joined by Matt. Well, where are you today, Matt?
1: Um, well, I'm currently in my place um, in Devon. I live in a, like a little uh, uh, cottage in between the two farms. So I've actually yeah, just come back from feeding the sheep at our Devon farm.
0: OK, so you've got two farms. We've
1: okay. got two small holdings, yeah. Ah. Um, one's we've had for about 50 years, no, 40 years, and the other we've had for about 400. Wow. So, um, yeah, quite a lot of history there, because it's the one that well, we've had for about 400 years um, that I've been to this morning, just pop up. I had some new arrivals yesterday, some new sheep from the Lake District have come down, so just wanted to make sure they were, they were enjoying it down here, so okay. they, they seem happy.
0: What, um, so what breed do you have? Are they all the same type?
1: What I've been doing so far is um, you, you sort of get two different types of sheep, really. One is sheep suited to the lowland. And they tend to be like a real heavier set, sort of muscular sheep. Um, And you then get highland sheep. And highland sheep tend to be, you know, sort of a more thinner, but tougher type sheep. So then you, some people sort of mix the two breeds together um, to sort of utilise both things. But, you know, there's lots of different breeds, but that's the general, the genre of sheep, highland, lowland and putting them together and Mm. then you get all sorts of different breeds but but what i have been doing is predominantly because cornwall um has got a lot of lowland sheep i've been buying you know like lowland type sheep but i'm now experimenting with hardwick which are one of our most ancient breeds of sheep Mm. and they they came from iceland i think or the vikings might have brought them over um but they're basically designed they're like very heavily set sheep so big boned but very tough Um, but they're actually designed to be able to withstand, like, the, you know, the real cold temperatures on top of the Lake District. Yeah. Um, so with my farming system, I, I basically buy sheep that are no longer deemed fit for breeding. So for one reason or another, you know, you can't breed them anymore, and the farmer decides to basically sell them, and they normally get sowed, or they normally go to a market, and they're bid for by different abattoirs, and then they're generally killed the next day. But with me, I tend to buy those sheep and then, you know, put them on pasture, for six months to twelve months, and um, well, hopefully they get a brilliant retirement. That's the main my first sort of mission. But then you do, you can actually rather. Than- having a type of meat that would go into either pet food or kebabs. You know, I, I basically turn it into something that goes to the best restaurants in the country. Yeah,
0: that's amazing.
1: But yeah, but what's fascinating about the Hardwick the is, like, these sheep are gearing up for... They, in their minds, they think... They're probably about seven or eight years old, and they think they're about to go into, like, a really terrible winter on top of the Lake District. Um, and a farmer just feels that these sheep, they wouldn't survive another winter. So they now come down to... Devon and Cornwall where it's really mild <laughs> it's almost like they're on holiday
0: <laughs> okay so you take the sheep from all over the country but yeah the, the herdwick from the Lake District most recently yeah and you bring them down to your farms in Cornwall and how many sheep have you
1: got um, at the moment cause it's winter we've got about 200 okay um, so in the summer we well, you know you can have up to about 400 on our land but it's you know the yeah so but the way, with the way I'm farming You know, we're not using any chemicals or pesticides, but if you farm in a certain way, your land just gets more and more productive. So in time, like last year, I probably had about 300 altogether. This year, we would have had about 600. Next year, we might be able to have 900. It's, it's, yeah, it's just the way you, you graze. You graze in a way that's very natural. But it just gets the soil working, and yeah, so yeah, so so I do, yeah, I don't know how many I'll have next year, but obviously, we need to sell them, so that's that'll probably be the limiting factor,
0: yeah, exactly. But you are doing incredibly well, and I've heard that you've been selling your um cold yore, which is the meat from your retired sheep,
1: yeah, so just explain that it's um, I, I, I have a lot of debates with um, for the last few years, I've I debate all sorts of people, but I, I debate a lot of people for the plant, plant-based community. And, um, and what one of them said was that you farmers hide behind like really nice terms, like to say retired dairy cow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I sort of took that at heart, really. But where the farmer's in Devon, the name Your is actually the colloquial term for you, um, and the cull is actually because those sheep are no longer fit for breeding, so they, you know, they're called cull you know, coal sheep or cull ewes. It's the same with cows, like coal cows. So I just thought, you know, I'm not going to hide behind anything, you know, it is what it is. And also my granddad, who was my big inspiration, you know, I just grew up with him calling them cull So I just thought, you know, I'll give it a go. So so I think uh, there's some restaurants in London where I think people actually think it's quite posh. You know, Mm -hmm. they think it's some sort of like elegant name and then you realise it's the exact opposite, really.
0: Yeah, it's very simple when you think about it, like the name. But if you look at it on a menu and you've never heard of it, you think, oh, this this sounds very exotic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, this this meat is being uh, seen on lots of menus uh, across the UK. And, yeah, top chefs in London are using it, which is incredible. Um, so can you explain a little a bit about the product and how chefs are using it?
1: Okay, uh, yeah, sure. Um, I think I... I've spent quite a lot of time in Extremadura in Spain, um, mm. and very lucky to have friends out there who produce um, Ibirico pigs and produce hamon. And I think, I, I personally think hamon is the best meat, if not the best food in the world. Um, so good. <laughs> so I used to work, um, I had a store opposite um, Tuse of Bartizido. I used to swap him um, basically, you know, cordish lamb or cordish pork, and he would... He would actually give me the equivalent of probably about £60 worth of ham on. And what was funny was, is actually me and a friend called Adam Layton, who has done all sorts of things in London food, but we would basically drive back. We'd call it van snacks. So we'd leave Bermondsey, and by the time we'd got to Hammersmith, we'd always have eaten this ham on. <laughs> like, it was like. Anyway, so, so basically, I spent a lot of time with the guys who, who produce the best ham in Spain. And what i realized was that if you were to produce like a world class meat you need an animal that's walked around a lot and iberico pigs basically walk around for about 18 months they're basically scratching and living in quite a harsh climate Um, but then when the acorns arrive they absolutely gorge on them and that basically produces this incredible fat cover so i sort of looked at sheep and realized that Sheep have actually walked a huge amount of time in their lives. So basically, what you do, you get the muscles get tough, but it just that's where all the flavour comes from. Um, But then I still thought that meat potentially has incredible flavour, but if we could then just make sure we get an incredible fat cover on at the end by making the meat lots of grass, then there was potential. Um, So yeah, so we tried it and yeah, it just basically worked. It was a real hunch. Amazing. So um, I approached um, Philip Warren and said my idea of fattening. Um, you know basically these these old sheep and he actually said it was a brilliant idea and I've I've told the warrens many many ideas in my time and they normally just look at me like I'm not so idiot so the fact they thought it was brilliant but but he was the one who said that you know basically after five years um, sheep stop producing lanolin um, and lanolin is the sort of comes from a gland it basically waterproofs all of the skin Um, but when you have lamb and you get that tacky sort of greasy aftertaste that that is lanolin so with my sheep you know you're expecting it to be more tacky but it's actually there's no tackiness at all because the lanolin is sort of non-existent
0: oh yeah that is interesting um so so your meat's like well First of all, you your sheep walk around a lot. Yeah. You age your meat properly, so the result is like flavorful, tender mutton. Effectively, right? Yes. Okay. So
1: basically, with this sheep, and then what we do that's really special is um, we age it on the bone for four to five weeks so what happens with meat is you've got a, a enzyme in the meat that once an animal dies um, the enzyme starts slowly it's called cow pain and it starts slowly breaking down the meat and it all sounds quite brutal but it's just naturally occurring um, and that's basically what makes the meat tender so the longer you age it as long as you dry age it um, so you're basically taking moisture out you're letting dry air in then it actually tender. makes the meat tender so what i think people used to do with mutton which is very what my product is they were basically as soon as the sheep had weaned its lambs they would kill it so basically it'd be really thin and then they wouldn't age it so then it would just be like this animal that had no fat it would have been pretty tough because it hadn't been aged but you know we do the exact opposite yeah so so yeah so so when the first time we really tested it was with a chap called jeremy chan um from okoyi and he yeah he (laughs) his first mouthful you know he was expecting something tacky and tough and it was the opposite and he he said this is you know this is already not far off ham on to be honest and that was a bit of a shock really
0: amazing
1: it is but also um the more i get into it like what an animal eats is invariably what it will taste like so where i'm really pushing boundaries i guess is what they actually eat during that last sort of six months to 12 months of their life um i think you need to make sure they're happy and I know that sounds a bit silly but I think the more relaxed and happy an animal it is the sort of more fat it will put on and the better fat and, and I want them to be happy anyway that's that's the main priority but but also you know I'm experimenting a lot with with what they eat and rather than just give them like a monoculture of grass you know I now actually put them in woodlands and rather than having like a choice of five plants to eat they might have a choice of 200 plants and it's all building up that flavor and mm. and also one of the things we do is this is where it gets quite brutal but um you, you want really lovely beautiful dark meat And dark meat is essentially it's actually haemoglobin so if, if you get pale meat say you, you know an animal's in a feedlot and it's sitting down a lot and stands up just to eat and sits down the meat will be very pale and that's essentially because there's very little haemoglobin, like, you know, the red blood cells. But if an animal's walking around a lot, the blood's pumping, the hemoglobin's going. So what I'd also do is, you know, the, the last two or three weeks is actually on a very steep hill. So if they want to feed, they have to walk up and down a lot. And You know, it's just things like that that we're experimenting with. So it's quite interesting.
0: OK, and it makes such a difference.
1: Huge, like, yeah. I, I think for us... Because we supplied chefs, I, I basically used to do all the deliveries myself um, in London. That's how I started the business with the warrants, and what I, I would unpack the meat every time with the chefs, and you just get a really good nose for what a chef is going to like, and if a chef likes it, you know, you know the, the customer will. So, mm. so for me, it's you can do, you know, you can just tell an extraordinary bit of meat if you're really into it, and you know, you, and so in my mind, you're always aiming. I'm sort of thinking, would that get an incredible reaction from a chef? Yeah. No, So it's just an interesting way of coming at yeah. it, really.
0: So yeah, it sounds absolutely amazing. I haven't managed to try any yet, but that's unfortunately because... Um, restaurants are shut and I know you supply to amazing restaurants in London but if I wanted to get some at home I think I think you do that as well now don't you?
1: Yeah well my butcher's actually got a really nice website um, but within that website we've got something called On The Pass where we, we, we have cuts that are specifically designed for certain restaurants in mind um, so you know for example one thing I'm really trying to push at the moment is mince I sort of think you know we're heading towards austere times and we we basically mince the leg and shoulder and then we add the belly and it's this really beautifully high fat meat and it's something that we um we worked very hard on with Oclava so Selin who owns Oclava and so you know she's of a Turkish descent and obviously their major part of their culture is mutton so you know if you went online to our website um you can go on there and buy Oclava mince and you know, with meat, it's it's all about balancing the carcass, and mince is just great for that. That's why burgers with, you know, with cattle are brilliant. Beef burgers really help butchers because you can put the trim in. But yeah, this um this mince is pretty special, actually. I have to say, it's uh, I'm living on the stuff. So yeah, we could uh, we'll happily send you some um, some mince, and I'm going to start working with chefs I work with to get them to come up with like recipes for mince. I just mm-hmm. think I think you know, with lockdowns and. You know, it's not going to get very pretty for the economy, but I think if we can supply a really high quality meat that's actually affordable and actually come up with lots of exciting recipes for it, it could be quite cool, I think
0: definitely so you've got your sheep and every year you're bringing more in and um, that's great and the farms well not the farms growing but the herds growing um, it sort all of
1: grows and then becomes smaller again oh, yeah
0: it grows and then becomes smaller okay because i was thinking that um it's obviously felt like the sheep are fertilizing the soil therefore more is growing so you can have more sheep yeah exactly yeah um but what is next I mean, are you thinking any other cattle um, or ruminants or? Um...
1: Um, I know, I'd say what's next is like, so basically, I've now, like, I've, I've sort of taken over the family farm. Um, and the family farm was, I'm reading a book by James Rebanks, his latest book. And um, it's all about how, through farmers and consumers, we've sort of basically farmed in a way that is just totally unnatural by using like chemicals and monocrops. And my granddad did exactly the same with his... He had, like, a, a dairy herd, like a, a Phrygians, huge, great animals that need a lot of protein, and they're just suited to, like, the chemical system. Yeah. But I'm now trying to basically... My obsession, I think, will always be sheep. Like, I think you've got to specialise in one thing and just get absolutely utterly... You know, I'm too old, really, to... You know, for me to try and learn lots of different things is just silly, and I think to try and become an expert in sheep and cattle would be hard. But I think... I just want to see how far I can push the environmental benefits of having sheep and also how... can You know, I've been doing this for a year and a half. Like, they've been producing ham on for Like three or four hundred years, if I, after a year and a half I can be already compared to Hamon, yeah, you know, hopefully I've got another good 20 farming years left in me. You know, how, how far can I push it? But, but what I'm really obsessed with is is basically something called silver pasture, and silver pasture is basically what we used to So, if you've got Project Drawdown, you know, don't know if you're familiar with them, but a group of scientists come together and worked out the best ways of drawing down carbon from the atmosphere, and silver pasture, which is essentially grazing animals in woodlands. Is number nine on that list. So when I take note of the family farm, we d- I didn't realise we've actually got 10-acre wood that was actually water, filled with water, you know, unfarmable. But it used to be like an ancient coppice. So I've now basically started managing that and I've now started putting sheep in. So the bit I'm obsessed with is um, you've got trees that have been in there untouched for like 400 years. So you've got like a 400-year-old root system. And if you just cut a few down or coppice them, they regrow anyway, but you let in light. And then there's a seed bank that may be two or 300 years old. That exposes all these different seeds and then their roots start interacting with the bacteria and the fungi. They start interacting with these 400-year-old root systems. So I think you're extracting nutrients that like on a level that you would never, ever get in the field. And and nutrients actually, that is where you get flavour. So I think with these sheep, if I keep on pushing this sort of coppicing and do it in a way that benefits you know hugely for biodiversity i think the flavor that i can get could be just something like never seen so that's that's what i'm you know so the future is basically you know i'm very lucky i've got this you know we had a, a sort of nature historian in and he doesn't think we've touched this woodland for about 300 years and that's my family so there's old tracks and there's trees growing out of like um, walls that they've made. And I can actually track that to my family that are buried in the graveyard. So you can actually, it's just quite a weird sensation. But so just know for the next 20 years, I'm going to be just seeing how far I can push the flavour of sheep is, is pretty incredible. So that's enough for me, really, I think. <laughs> so it's quite exciting.
0: Yeah, it's really exciting. I think, um, yeah, exactly. Mutton's got a bad reputation. and um, And I think it's slowly changing, but I think it's brilliant that you're you're trying to change that and yeah give sheep a good retirement yeah and i want to speak to you a little bit about cornish produce in general because um before you took over the farm and you were um and you have your call your you set up the Cornwall project promoting sort of incredible ingredients and and products of cornwall can you yeah so can you talk to me a little bit about that
1: yeah i did so basically um you know we, we grew up in a small town called launston um Population of about 7,000, so Cornwall's like um, the third poorest region in in Western Europe Um, But we had a butcher, so I grew up in this town and we always had this butcher Philip Warren um, and we just all like you know small population, but the Warrens probably have about ten thousand customers a week. They're just round, and all they do is they just buy off local farmers, buy whole animals. They encourage farmers to farm in a traditional way, and they've always done that. Like a lot of supermarkets, you know, the supermarkets when they sort of exploded in the sort of seventies and eighties, they they're after a really protein-heavy animal, and so a lot of farmers started buying very heavy European animals such as Limousines, Charolais. But Philip Warren just said, look, don't do that to Cornish farmers because you're. It's just not suited you know it's too wet mm. um you know you need to stick with the traditional breeds and for a time that was out of fashion but philip Warren kept on doing it ian warren took on the fan for me and did the same so i approached them like 10 years ago to sell that produce into london we just assumed it was all right but we, we had no benchmarks. so we went up to london with it and i was literally i really <laughs> i had no idea i didn't actually know much about meat then and i certainly <laughs> didn't know much about selling to restaurants but but it became very apparent very quickly that actually what we were doing was there's probably only about four or five other butchers in the country that were even close. Um, and it was just at a time when, like, say, people like James Lowe and Isaac McHale, they'd been spending time in Noma and places like that, and they came back to London. These were all quite ambitious chefs who were very driven. But these guys were obsessed with provenance, and we were able to basically take them from London, drive them down to Cornwall, get to meet the farmers and butchers, and, and show them exactly where everything came from. Basically, our biggest rule was you need to have empathy because, Mm. you know, we will work really hard to make your business work, but you need to understand that, you know, we need to make money as well. It needs to work. And people who've got empathy understand that. But one thing about Cornwall very importantly is just by our topography, we've got, we've basically got, if you want a lot of grass, you need a lot of rain, but you need a really warm climate. So Cornwall is just perfect for grass growing. Like, my grass is actually still growing. Mm. There'll be people up in the Lake District and in Yorkshire absolutely hating me, but... If you think grass fed animals are the best, then Cornwall has more grass. And so we should really have, you know, some of the best meat, you know, not in the UK, but in the world. But our issue was is just getting it to London you know it's 240 miles away it's chill distribution that, that that was always the issue which is something that personally worked really really hard on doing and we you know once we cracked it we were fine but it was just that initial three or four years of setting up that was hard.
0: Yeah because you don't think of um, well UK as being such a small country you don't think of the counties being like so different do you but yeah. actually if you compare the Cornwall to Lake District like there's vast differences in the climate and yeah as you say your grass is still growing so you're, your sheep are having a lovely
1: Time. I <laughs> okay, so, well, so I brought these sheep down for the um, yeah, they only arrived last night. This is one of the funny things with um, transport like life transport's got a bad name that you know I can totally see why if you know if you're taking animals halfway across the world. But with these herd, we were basically in Lake District probably about seven o'clock yesterday morning. They were put onto a, a lorry and they arrived to me just before dark last night and they've been on that for about seven or eight hours. They got off. And I've got a field waiting for them. It's just like for this time of year, the grass is just incredible. But you know, the harber could probably be on top of the Lake District, really cold. Like trying to find bits of grass, and they basically they looked, they got off the lorry, and they just stopped in the gateway, and they just you can just see them thinking, "What the hell's going on?" Like and then they just ah, and ah, and ah, and ah. it's just it's really yeah, it's just quite funny.
0: <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> do you and do you think? Um, just going back on your word, um, do you think that? Potentially, the well, hopefully, the future of British farming is is sort of less like monoculture crops and fields and fields of wheat and things. And do you think that hopefully, maybe some woodlands and things will break it all up? And potentially, you'll have animals grazing between grassland and in woods. What do you think? Is that like dream? Is that too like out there? Or do you think?
1: I don't think it is at all. Um, my my worry is, I think the rolling community. They've got big power, government. my worry is that they're going to stop farmers farming and basically make it go too wild. But I think what I'm trying to show is, I'll tell you a story is, um, so I, I saw this talk on silver pasture and I wanted to do it. So I approached my mum and I said, look, can I plant some trees in the fields? And she said, no way, you'll never, do it. <laughs> my stepdad was... He, he was even more aggressive in his no. So when I found this coppice, I just said, Right, well, can I do something there? And mum's like, Well, yeah, we're never going to use it. So, so go for it. But I think to try and get a farmer to actually plant trees straight into his fields is a huge ask. It's just you're totally changing it. It means that you can't. You know, get your machinery around and it, you know, not uh, in
0: fields, but kind of like on the edge. You know?
1: No, but I think no, but I think potentially in fields is brilliant. But I think it's almost like a gateway drug. Um, <laughs> I think if I, all most farmers have got woodland, and most of them don't know what to do. They just let it run wild. The shoulder woodland, once you let a tree canopy take over and you don't let light in, then you get very, very little biodiversity on the floor. So it's actually not very useful and it's not good for animals or anything really. So if you start just managing it and then putting sheep in, you suddenly realise how beneficial it is to both biodiversity but also the sheep's health. Like sheep have got their taste buds on the outside of their nose. They're able to actually choose the nutrients that A, make them well basically they know what's going to fill them up but also actually they can self heal so my theory is if I can get farmers to have a look at what I'm doing get some inspiration from it honestly if you if you, if any farmer comes and sees what's happening in woods now it's just like it's just unreal like the transformation in a year you know I'm not showing off myself because all I've done is chop down a few trees and put sheep in so it's not like I'm a genius but I think once farmers see that how beneficial it is then I think they'd be encouraged then to plant trees so I think you can sequester a lot of carbon just by grazing in the right way. But if you yeah. had trees, you're probably sequestering about five times as amount of carbon because you're getting carbon on the surface, but you're also getting carbon down in the bottom, but you're also then encouraging new growth. And it's a new growth where you really pump the carbon in. So, you know, if we're real about wanting to take carbon out of the atmosphere, I would say, you know, get farmers using their woods first and then get them planting trees, you know, in the fields. So mm-hmm. I think it's all possible. But I do... Um, but I do, one thing I would say is at the moment we're in big danger of like offshoring our agriculture. You know, we, are you know, I think farmers can be encouraged to rewild, but we need food somewhere. And I, I just worry that we're going to make places like Africa or, you know, less developed countries be the ones that start growing all that monoculture, essentially for the plant-based diets. Um, and it's them that are going to, you know, have that environmental burden, you know, we'll, we'll have all these beautiful woodlands with lynx and wolves and bears and they'll, they'll, they're going to have like, you know, barren lands and, and you know, that. So that's, that's my worry, really.
0: Okay, yeah, no, that's a really fair point. Um, brilliant. Well, lastly, a question that I ask all my guests just to bring it back into yeah food and seasons um it's what your favorite british seasonal ingredient is at the moment
1: um i think i'd probably go for like a cold water fish i'd probably go for say something like maybe a bit out there but like say cod i think like a cold water fish a cold water fish when the water's actually really cold when you get a really like you can just see an incredibly fresh bit of cod and it just absolutely is like translucent and shine. So yeah. the idea of, I think in the winter, that type of whitefish is a, it's absolute premium. And I, I think I'd be, yeah, probably tempted by that, I think. But obviously from a healthy fish stock. like from
0: Yeah, from a sustainable source.
1: <laughs> for, exactly, yes, of course, of course, of course.
0: Amazing. <laughs> Before we end today's show, we'll be hearing from Fergus Drennan, aka Fergus the Forager. He's a wild food experimentalist, educator, and runs regular immersive foraging courses.
2: You may be familiar with the gorgeous elder tree for its wonderful flowers for cordials and fritters and then it's gorgeous berries for syrups and ice cream and all this kind of thing but did you know there is a wonderful fungus that grows on the elder tree and it's one of those ones which i highly recommend gathering as beginner because it has all these things to recommend it one is that it grows all year round the other is that it's really easy to identify it's ear shaped and kind of when it's fresh it's the color of milk chocolate as it kind of dries a little bit it goes into kind of dark chocolate color territory now it can completely withstand desiccation so in the summer you can pick it and it's completely dry and you just throw it into a jar or a box you don't even have to dehydrate it it can also in the winter withstand being completely frozen and it will do both of these things drying and freezing and when it's thawed or when it's rehydrated it will carry on growing the other thing to recommend it is that it is nearly always free of maggots and finally it is very very common so what i'm talking about here is the jelly ear auricular auricularia judair sometimes called wood ear or cloud ear formerly called jews ear so it's a wonderful mushroom, because another thing that is really good about it is that you can use it more traditionally, kind of in savoury dishes, so very popular in China and Japan, where it would be used in soups, um, kind of in this country, when we, we're using it, kind of basic recipes are for chopping it finely and kind of just frying it up. You, you kind of fry it up whole and it starts leaping out the pan a bit like popcorn. So you've got to be careful, but you can do that. And also for putting in soups and stews and it will kind of take on the flavour of the, of the stew. But it's really fun as well to do sweet recipes. So years ago, I was running a course for, for kids and there was lots of jelly ear growing on a tree. And you know this is one that you can eat raw. So I, I ran into the woods with these kids and was grabbing these mushrooms and eating them raw. And uh, I thought they'd be delighted, but they were horrified. So the next couple of weeks, I had another course with kids. So what I did is I got them fresh and then I dried them and then I rehydrated some in um, ribena and some in concentrated orange juice and then dipped them in dark chocolate. And of course, you can imagine when I was running the next course, the children were really excited to kind of find this amazing chocolate mushroom. So now I do that with adults, except I rehydrate them in our uh, slow gin or cherry brandy before freezing, taking out, dipping them cold into dark chocolate. So it's a really good way to use them. Another is if you get the jelly ear and a nice kind of fresh one and you rub it between your thumb and your your finger you can separate the kind of two skins then you make a little hole in it, and then you can pipe it with cream herby cream cheese or or cream cheese with like other chopped cooked mushrooms or mushroom powders in there and then you can you can temper it and deep fry it it's absolutely wonderful for that so yeah look out for jelly ear i would say despite the fact that you can pick it all year that my favorite time to pick it is is kind of now this is it's coming into its best season when it's more prolific so i think about if i want to gather lots really i gather throughout the whole of december and it can be on living elder it can be on fallen dead branches of elder broken off from the main plant it can be on standing elder where you've got dead branches or yeah just look around anywhere where there's elder you're you're likely to find it and the other thing that is good i mean you don't have to just wait for this kind of season but what you can do is if you're going out for a walk you can gather a bit here or gather a bit there and just build it up over the year but i highly recommend it let me just add before i go that most mushrooms are medicinal in some way, some very specifically. So in this case, although jelly ear can be wonderful for helping lower cholesterol um, and it's quite good for diabetics, it's also quite blood thinning. This can be great if you suffer from kind of conditions that thicken the blood and lead to kind of thrombosis and all the rest of it. But that blood thinning is something to be aware of if you're taking blood thinning medication. Um, And also certainly you wouldn't want to gorge on this mushroom if you're pregnant or trying to conceive so just just a little word of caution there
0: the jelly ears sounded hilarious but now i've looked them up they really do look familiar that's all for this episode but if you enjoyed it i'd be so grateful if you could rate and review the podcast next week we are joined by cook gardener baker and food and sustainability director xanthi gladstone She is on a mission to educate people of the positive effects that the right food choices can have on ourselves and the environment. See you next time.